following messages were presented during the Friends of Israel 2009 Prophecy Conferences. It should be noted that a few of our speakers presented their messages with the aid of PowerPoint. Luke chapter 8, and we're going to begin in verse 22. Now it happened on a certain day that he, and he there being Christ, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. And they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, where is your faith? It was a uh, long and tiring day for our Savior that day along the Sea of Galilee. The book of Mark, it's recorded that uh, the crowds came that day and they kept coming and coming and pressing in. And so Christ got into a boat and pushed off from shore so that he could teach and all could hear. Spent the day teaching parables and healing. And as the day came to a close and as the evening was coming on, Christ uh, came to his disciples and said, Let's go to the other side of the lake. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to Israel. If you've been to Israel, raise your hand. Yeah, a good many of you. A lot of you have been there. You've been then probably to the Sea of Galilee. The sea of Galilee is in the north part of the land of Israel. Uh, it is a common area there in Israel that uh, you visit when you visit the land of Israel. And if you know anything about the Sea of Galilee, it's, it's really just a big lake. Uh, in our mind, the sea is a large, large body of water. And, uh, but in the Hebrew language, they had one word for a large body of water, which is translated sea. The Sea of Galilee is only about uh, as wide as a uh, um, place about six miles across and about 12 miles long. So that gives you kind of an idea of how long or how big the Sea of Galilee is. On this particular day, uh, as they pushed off from shore and launched out into the Sea of Galilee, Christ was, was evidently extremely tired, exhausted from his day of ministry. And he goes down into the stern, the hold of the boat, and finds a large pillow and lays down and falls asleep. You've had days like that, haven't you? I'm sure you have. I have. Where it's just not hard to fall asleep. But we read here in uh, verse 23, it says that as he fell asleep, a windstorm came down on the lake. And they were filling with water and they were in jeopardy. Uh, jeopardy literally means in danger. Several of the disciples were fishermen. They were men of the sea. When this windstorm comes up, the Sea of Galilee turns into a tempest, right? Maybe you've been on a large body of water when a windstorm's come up. It is a frightening event. And in the boat they were in, it sets, it's recorded here that the water began lapping into the boat. They began taking on water. These were men that understood what water does to a boat. 
I remember uh, eating in a Chinese restaurant a few years ago and uh, opening up the fortune cookie. Now, you know, you know what that is. You know, you got to read your fortune, right? And of course, if we don't like the fortune, we, we just kind of disregard it. But if we like what it says, well, yeah, that's our good fortune for the day. But I remember reading this little, little saying. It says, the same water that floats a boat can sink it. And isn't that true? The disciples understood that. Several of them were fishermen. They understood that if they continue to take water into the boat, it won't be long before that boat will be at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. And they will all perish. And so in their concern to preserve their life, they go to Christ. They knew He was a man of great works. They had seen Him heal the sick and raise someone back to life. I'm sure in their mind they didn't know what He was going to do, but if there's somebody that needed to know what was going on, it was Christ. And so they go to Him. They shake Him and wake Him up. And they didn't say, hey, we just, we just want to share a little news with you. Right? I mean, these men are concerned for their lives. And they shout him, Master, Master, don't you know we're perishing? And it tells us that Christ arises from his sleep. And Mark tells us that he says in English three words. I didn't go back and look in the Hebrew or Greek to see how many words it is. Two, Mano tells me. I have a Hebrew expert right here in the front row. <laughs> Thank you, Mano. Two words. Peace. Be still. And suddenly the wind stopped and the sea settled down. Things went back to the way they were before the storm came. But Jesus Christ then turns to his disciples and he says to them, where is your faith? One of the things that I've noticed in the word of God is this truth. Great men in the Bible are always men of faith. Right? They are men who are able to see God at work in this world and what God is doing. And when you reflect on those few words, where is your faith? And think about what Christ was saying to them. Here were men who were in the presence of the God who created this universe. They were with the Messiah, the promised one. If they knew anything about what the prophets foretold, they did not foretell that the Messiah would come and die at sea in a storm. If they were men of faith, they would have realized that as bad as it was, this was not the end for them. But instead, they looked at it as man looks at the situation. They simply saw the danger they were in, and they panicked. So Christ challenges them with his statement, where is your faith? Think about how that stands in contrast to another man in the Bible, Daniel. Remember in Daniel chapter 2, 
King Nebuchadnezzar, is, is, he's, he has this troubling dream. A dream that, that just, he can't get over it. So he calls in all of his wise men, right? And he says to them, I want you to tell me what my dream was and then interpret it for me. And uh, the wise men, you know, <laughs> come on, king. <laughs> you tell us what your dream is, then we'll interpret it. Right? Nobody can tell you what your dream is. He says, no, you will tell me what my dream is, or I'll put you to death. And they're unable to do it. And so Nebuchadnezzar orders all the wise men to be taken out and put to death. And it is, they come to gather up Daniel uh, and his friends. And Daniel finds out what's going on, that they're about to be put to death. Now, does that sound like peril? If somebody showed up today to take you outside and put you to death, would you think you're in danger? Oh, I think so. And Daniel says, give me a moment with the king. And he goes into King Nebuchadnezzar and he says, King, if you will give me time to go before my God, I will give you the understanding and reveal what your dream is and what it means. Daniel was a man who lived by faith. He could have panicked in that situation and said, we're all about to die. And perhaps tried to fight against the men that came to take him out to kill him. But instead, he's a man who sees that this is an opportunity for God to work. And in Daniel chapter 2, after God reveals the dream to him, Daniel gives this wonderful prayer that reveals where his faith is. It says in verse 20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His, and He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and He raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. Daniel didn't see the situation he was in as men see it. Mortal danger. He saw it as an opportunity for God to work. And he praises God in this, in this prayer in which he says, blessed is the name of God. He gives him praise for who he is because he changes the times and the seasons. When things are changing in this earth, it is God's hand at work bringing that about. And when kings are removed and new kings are raised up, that's not a human thing going on. That's a God thing happening. You see, there's a real lesson. In the face of imminent danger, Daniel saw that God was at work. He didn't stumble over the things that he could just see and understand. His face was in God Almighty and what the Lord could do. And he trusted God to use him to be his instrument. Right? Now, I think that's relevant to us because we today are living in stormy days. I don't think I have to do much to convince you of that, do I? There's a lot of turbulence going on in this world today. 
And the question that Jesus Christ asked disciples are, is just as applicational today as it was in that day. Where is your faith? If your faith is tied up in the value of your assets, if your faith is in your understanding of what you only know as a human, you're going to fear the storm. right? But if our faith is in God Almighty and what He is doing, we're not going to fear. We're going to look to see what God is doing and how He is working. This morning I want to talk to you about that because this past year has been, I think, an incredibly stormy year in our lives. And, you know, I could take what I've just shared with you and go a whole different direction and share personal struggles. Many of you here could stand up and share testimonies of storms in your life in the past year, I'm sure. But what I want to focus on for the rest of the time we have uh, in this hour this morning is some of the things that God is doing in this world that seem very stormy to us. I mean, if you think about what's happened in the last year, just since we were together here a year ago, right? all the things that have occurred, most people's investments have fallen by 30 or 40% or more. I remember reading an article last fall, late last fall, entitled Nowhere to Hide. And it was an article that explained that it didn't really matter where your money was invested this last year. It lost value. There was nowhere to invest money, with the exception of treasury notes and CDs. Anywhere else you put your money, it lost value. In America, real estate peaked about a year and a half, two years ago. And people trying to sell their homes today are taking less than what they would have gotten a couple years ago. Stocks went down. Bonds went down. Commodities went down. If you bought gas futures a year ago, they went down, didn't they? Remember a year ago, we were all complaining about how much it cost in gas just to get here? And then we saw how that went down. Investments fell significantly over the last year. There was another thing that occurred, a financial crisis that took place. Right? As, uh, as our banks, our financial institutions got in trouble, um, we can blame a lot of things for that. We can blame greed. I think greed's at work in that, absolutely. But it's not all greed. Partially directed by the government and what they dictated to mortgage companies that they had to do. Um, but incredible things, you know, you, you just can't go out and borrow more than a property's worth and not expect to get in trouble. You can't go out and borrow money with a low payment to start with that's going to balloon up to a big payment you can't afford and be certain that you're not going to get in trouble. I mean, that works as long as real estate's going up and you can always sell your property uh, if you can't make the payment. But what happens when the market turns and goes the other way? And that's what happened last year. And suddenly people couldn't sell their homes for enough money to pay off their debt and they couldn't afford payments on their mortgages and foreclosure rates went up. People defaulted on loans. And mortgage companies got in trouble. And, uh, and suddenly these mortgages that had been rated as secure mortgages were rated as insecure mortgages, and that forced banks to have to revalue those mortgages, and suddenly they didn't have enough reserves, and they were in default. And the government rushed in to rescue them. And we didn't like it. And a lot of us said, let the banks fail, right? 
but a lot of you probably wouldn't be sitting here today if they had. Because the effect on our economy would have been devastating. Not only that, but uh, we saw America move in the direction of socialism in this last year. If you had said to me a year ago, Jim, I'm predicting right now that by the time we gather next year, America is going to be more socialistic than it's ever been, I would have said, boy, I don't know about that. We've got a pretty stable government. And we're, uh, we believe in, in freedom, and we don't believe in socialism. But look what's happened in the last 12 months is our government's bought up more and more companies and trying to help to bail companies out. And GM went from being General Motors to Government Motors, right? They bought up banks. Not bought them out completely, but bought interest in them. And now dictate how those businesses will do business. And probably the saddest thing to us as Americans and to our pride is the fact that we're losing our prominence as the world power. The world today blames us for the economic crisis that has taken over the world. We created that because of the banking crisis. Now, it doesn't seem to matter to them that their banks are in as bad a shape as ours. They blame us for creating it. And we're seeing the U.S. losing its prominent position. For years and years, the world has beat its path to our door because we've had uh, the most flexible, open laws for doing business anywhere in the world. And you could do financial deals here in the United States that you couldn't do in other countries. But that is all changing. We are living in stormy days. I really think as I look at what's going on in the world today, that God is setting the stage for the tribulation. I cannot dogmatically tell you that is the case. I'm reminded of uh, men, great men of God, who felt that way as World War II was unfolding. Many a sermon it was preached about the, the end of days at hand. Men who were convinced that, that Hitler was the Antichrist. And so I have to be cautious in what I'm going to say to say that it certainly looks like that could be the case. And, and I'm going to share with you from that perspective, but keep in mind that we do not set the timetable for God. Right? God is the one who sets the time. And we will not determine that for Him. There is nothing we can do to speed that up or slow it down. Right? Well, First of all, one of the things that's occurring, as I was talking about, is the diminishing influence of U.S. power and prominence in the world. Um, I find that interesting from this perspective. One of the most common questions we get asked as we, we go around the country teaching about prophecy is where is the United States in prophecy, future prophecy? Because we don't see the, Uni the United States mentioned in future prophecy, at least not as a country. Um, and it's possible that the United States may be part of the, 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 the ten-nation or ten-kingdom confederacy uh, that's part of, of Antichrist. But it certainly doesn't seem to have a prominent role as a world power in end times. If it does, it's really not clear to us about that. Now, if that is the case, then that really means one thing, and that is that we will not be a world power by the time the tribulation comes uh, about. 
And yet we look at what's happening today and we say, well, maybe God is, is beginning to sow the seeds for a one-world government here on the earth. Um, we read in uh, Daniel as well as in, in Revelation about how the Antichrist is coming. If you turn to Revelation chapter 13, to rule over the world. And as Antichrist comes to power, there, there are some significant events that happen during the tribulation. Perhaps some of the most significant come right toward the midpoint. Uh, there's that battle in chapter 12 of Revelation in heaven that occurs in which uh, Michael and his, his angels uh, fight against Satan and his demons, his angels. And Satan and his angels lose and they're cast out of heaven forever. No longer will Satan be permitted to go to heaven and make uh, accusations against God's saints. Right? And Satan, knowing that his time is short, comes to earth with great wrath. And then we get into chapter 13, verse 3, talking about the Antichrist. It says, And I saw one of the heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. So we have the mortal wound of the Antichrist. Um, a mortal wound is a wound that kills, and, all, and then it's healed, and he's brought back to life, and all the world marvels and follows the beast. All the world's going to follow this man. So they worship the dragon, which is Satan, who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, Antichrist, saying, who is like the beast, who is able to make war with him? You see what's happening here, right? You kill a man, and he comes back to life. And the world marvels at this and says, who can stand against a man like that? You can't kill him. And they see him as God. And they worship him. And they follow him. Antichrist has a, is a partner um, which is the false prophet. And later on in this chapter we read, and this is really what I want to get to, verse um, 15, it says, He granted power to give breath to the image, that's the image that he raises up in, in uh, the temple, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as he would to not worship the image of the beast and be killed, okay? So this is the power granted uh, to the false prophet. And verse 16, He causes all both great and small, right? rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand and on their foreheads, that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now look what he says, verse 16. Who's going to receive this mark? Everyone, right? Both great and small, rich and poor, free and slave. Because, verse 17 says, no one can buy or sell except one who has the mark or name of the beast. But just imagine with me for a minute. And when you left here today and you went out to get a bite to eat, they said, show me your mark. Oh, you don't have a mark. You can't eat. We cannot sell you anything. You want us... 
whether you want to buy or whether you want to sell, in that day, you're going to have to have that mark. Right? Now, there's some real implications to what that means. In order for the false prophet to be able to implement that law and carry it out, there has to be a one-world, not only government, but financial system. Right? In order for that to work. Consider this, many of the world leaders today see the financial crisis as a turning point in world history. The banking crisis, which they blame the U.S. for creating, and the global recession, in their minds, have become the catalyst for radical change that is occurring in the world today. Here's what Henry Kissinger, and you remember who Henry Kissinger is, right? Yeah, I think we all do. Henry Kissinger said this back in January of this year, he's being interviewed, and he says, conflicts across the globe and an international respect for Barack Obama have created the perfect setting for the establishment of a new world order. He went on to say that his, being Obama's task, will be to develop an overall strategy for America in this period when really a new world order can be created. Henry Kissinger fully believes that the best thing that could happen is for this world to have a new world order. And he is part of an exclusive group that meets every year to talk about and plan the bringing about of a one world government system. In March of this year, the uh, Prime Minister of Britain, Gordon Brown, says this, the scale and speed of the global banking crisis has at times been almost overwhelming. Now is the time for leaders of every country in the world to work together. This was no ordinary time, but a defining moment. An unprecedented period of global change and a time when one chapter ended and another began. And see, what he's saying is this, this, this whole upheaval in, in, in financial crisis that we went through is a moment in time in which there is a significant change occurring for the world. Back in April of this year, there was a summit called the G20 Summit that was held to lay the framework for a new world order. You may have remembered reading or hearing a little bit about that, but you probably didn't catch most of what was going on there. The G20 is, is um, the group of the 19 largest countries with the 19 largest economic systems, the 19 largest economies, if you will, plus the European Union. So you add 19 countries plus European Union together, and you get 20. And they go by the name of the G20. Back in April, they met together and, uh, and laid out this framework for a new world order. At the summit, they concluded the summit with the adoption of what they called a global plan. And all of the countries in the EU agreed to abide by this plan. And one of the significant things that was in that plan was an agreement to a uniform regulations and bylaws that will govern the financial stability uh, and, and, the, the, and regulate the uh, finances going forward for all of the uh, G20 member nations. So this financial stability board is made up of central bankers from these G20 nations in the European Union. So in effect, what they, what they established 
was a new regulatory agency that is a global agency. And every country, including the United States, has agreed to follow the rules and regulations that this Financial Standards Board is going to put out. Okay? And they are at work at, uh, at putting that group together and beginning their work. So all the nations in the, of the G20 have agreed to place all their important financial institutions, instruments, and markets, in other words, their financial systems under the authority of one regulatory agency, the Financial Standards Board. How many of you are aware of this? Not very many. You're going to become aware of this. In the days to come, as this board goes to work and begins putting out rules and regulations, the incredible thing about this is that every nation in the G20 has surrendered their sovereignty over their finances and over their economies to this one agency, the Financial Standards Board. To me, that's an incredible event. It sets a framework for an internationally agreed high standards that is required if you're going to have a global financial system. So this is an important step toward a one-world financial system. And you understand why. If you're going to have a one-world financial system, you have to have an agreed-upon set of rules under which you operate. And that's exactly what this Financial Standards Board is going to do. And again, the motivation for this uh, in these countries agreeing to this incredible I mean, if you think about it, the, the surrender of our sovereignty. Listen, the United States is part of the G20. Okay, our government has agreed to this. So I'm not talking about what other countries are doing. I'm talking about what we're doing as a nation. It, when you think about the sovereignty over our finances to say we would rather surrender our own sovereignty, our own judgment in that, and turn it over to an international group. But the momentum for that, the drive for that, is the financial crisis we've been in for the last nine months. And saying that it is time for a new order, a new way of doing business. We can't rely on the U.S. anymore to set the way. We need an international group to do that for us. It's amazing to see the speed at which the world leaders have embraced this idea. Coming out of this G20 summit, President Obama declared that all nations must come together to build a stronger global regime. Now, that's the man who is leading our country today. And he believes very well that this is the best thing for the United States and the world, is to have a world global regime. Again, the Prime Minister of Britain, uh, Prime Minister Brown, also said, I think a new world order is emerging with the foundation of a new progressive era of international cooperation. So you see the thinking of the world leaders that this is something that is necessary and something that is good for the world. There's a very strong European flavor to what is uh, happening as uh, there is this move toward this one world financial system. Back last year in the fall of 2008, it was European leaders that began calling for a global summit. The first summit was held in November last year, and that set up the summit that was held in April of this year. And the purpose of it was to establish a new world order for regulating the banking system. Uh, their rallying cry about this is we need an international agency to regulate the finances in this world because countries cannot be trusted to do it on their own. But here's the interesting thing to me about this new financial standards board that has been agreed to and is being set up right now. There's a very pro-European bias. Right? 
Because this board consists of 12 members. Six of those 12 seats on that board go to Europe. Five of them go to European countries. And one of them goes to the EU, European Union. Now think about this. The United States, which has the largest company, or the largest economy of all the G20 countries, our economy is three times larger than the next largest country, which is Japan, has one seat on that board. If you have a board that consists of 12 people and six of them are European countries, who's going to control the board? Europe. Where's the leadership going to come from? Europe. Why do I know that's true? Because if Europe controls six of the 12 seats, they can stop anything from happening on the board. They have veto power. Right? Because unless they all vote for something, if all six vote against something, there won't be a majority to carry it. And yet they only need to get one other country to go in with them on anything they want to do. And they have control. You're going to find the leadership of this board is going to come out of Europe. And isn't that interesting when we consider the fact that in Daniel, Daniel tells us the Antichrist is the prince of the people who will destroy the temple. Um, in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple. And I know there's lots of debate, and some of you here have great theories on who that Antichrist is going to be. Some believe it'll be a Jewish person, right? Some believe that uh, Antichrist will be uh, a Muslim. The most simple understanding of that statement, the prince of the people who destroy, is that he will come out of Europe. He will be a European. Likely not a Jew, but a Gentile. That's the most simple understanding of the statement of a prince of the people who come. Princes are purebred people. Right? But in any case, we see Europe is going to control this financial standard boards. Now, another very vital part in the false prophet's uh, desire to control what goes on in the world through the mark of the beast is that in order to restrict buying and selling, there has to be a single currency. I think that's very critical for him to be able to carry out his plan of, of controlling the buying and selling through the mark of the beast. And another fallout of the 2008 financial crisis is the call from foreign nations to establish a new global currency and banking system. Here's what uh, Stephen Gallo said in 2009. Now, he's the head of market research for a very, very large international foreign exchange company called Schneider. And he said uh, when he was interviewed that the financial crisis will lead to the creation of a global central bank and a global single currency within 15 years. This single global currency is where we are headed globally on a monetary basis over the course of the next 10 to 15 years. Here's a man who works in foreign currencies and exchange every day. He's an expert. He knows what's going on. And as he perceives things, he's not God. He won't determine this. So his timetable of 10 to 15 years is uncertain. But he is simply saying what he sees going on in foreign currencies today is that there is this drive and desire to get to one single foreign currency. In March of 2009, the finance minister of China wrote a paper and put it out 
calling for the creation of a new world currency that eventually will replace the dollar as the world's standard. He proposed a sweeping overhaul of global finance. Today, the, the, the international currency of choice is the U.S. dollar. It's been that way since World War II. Prior to that, it was the British sterling pound, right, for, for a century and a half. And, uh, and what they're really calling for is replacing the dollar as the, the accepted world currency and replacing it with a, a currency that is not related to any single uh, country. What, I, what is really interesting in all this is that U.S. Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner let slip back in March the same month that Washington was open to the idea of a world currency. And so the leaders of Brazil, Russia, and, India, and China are, are constantly, you're, I'm reading in, in the press, uh, every time I turn around, they're calling for a uh, more diversified international monetary system. In June, last month, uh, they had a press conference and had a, uh, where, where they called for this diversified international monetary system. And then earlier this month, there was a meeting of the G8. G8 is a subgroup of the G20. Uh, the eight largest ec uh, economic nations came together. It was held over in Italy. And coming out of that summit, uh, Russian President Medvedev, he held up a coin. There was a coin that was given to all the, those that came and attended the conference, all the leaders, right? This coin was put out by a group whose purpose is to see the creation of a world currency. Um, and so he held up that coin which calls for a one-world currency, and it bears the English words, United Future World Currency. And here's what the Russian president said. Something similar could appear, and it could be held in your hand, and it could be used as a means of payment. This is international currency. In other words, he's not saying that coin that he held up will be what it is, but he's saying this coin just shows you what is coming. And he as the president of Russia and China and India and Brazil and these other international nations are all calling for replacing the U.S. dollar with one international currency. The world is marching toward a one-world financial economic system. And you can keep your eyes open for future developments that are going to come. But let me just give you one word of caution here. Moving from the concept, you know, there, there's a lot of words flying around right now about this. But moving from the concept to the reality of a one-world banking system is not going to be easy. Here's why. Without a one-world government, the question is, who's going to control that one-world banking system and set fiscal policy? Because whoever does has tremendous authority and power. And that really is a political question that I think will require a one-world leader to solve. Stay tuned. If you're like me, believe the rapture is going to occur before the tribulation, we won't be here to see the conclusion of this matter. But I want you to keep in mind what Christ's words were. Where is your faith? Our faith should be in the God who controls everything. And we should not fear perilous times. But we should trust in the God who determines the times and the seasons, who removes kings and raises up kings. That's where our faith should be.